Well, good morning, church. Let's pray once more and we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you that for so many of us in this room, there is no longer a veil over our hearts that keeps us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are perhaps few, a few in this room, maybe many, who have the veil yet remaining over them. And we pray that even through this sermon this morning, that the veil would be lifted, that they would be granted eyes to see, and that the light, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In these things and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the season, right? New Year's. We talked about it a little bit last week with our guest preacher, Sam Amati. This is kind of the season for resolutions. And I wonder if you've ever asked the question of yourself, why is it that we even desire change? Why do we desire to have this kind of, like within ourselves, we have this desire to change? Can you explain that? What's that all about? And I'll get into why I think there is that desire for change a little bit later in the sermon. But suffice it to say, there's a more basic question to that than even that one, and that is how? How do we change? How do people actually change? How do people, in the language of our text this morning, get transformed? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the how how question. How do people change? That's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the beginning part of verse 4. The context that he's alluding to in the Old Testament is in Exodus 32 through 34. You may remember the story where Moses has access to the glory of the Lord and he approaches the Lord, but he can't approach, he can't approach the people as he comes down and, and interacts with the people without a veil over his face. And so the image is from the Old Testament story, but Paul is bringing it forward a little bit and applying it to us in our day. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack three things. We're going to move through the first two points very quickly, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the third point. Here are my points this morning. Number one, I want to talk about the goal of Christian growth. The goal of Christian growth. What, what, what is growth really all about in the end? Number two, what's the process of Christian growth? And number three, what is the means of Christian growth? How does it happen? And we'll be spending the vast majority of our time this morning on the means of Christian growth, that third point. Scotty Smith, pastor and author that I enjoy, tweeted out this week on his Twitter account, he said, beware of any sermon, spiritual discipline, or discipleship course that doesn't make Jesus the hero, the gospel essential, and grace triumphant. In other words, beware of self-help. And this morning, you're not going to get self-help. You're going to, by God's grace, get Jesus as the hero, the gospel being essential, and grace being triumphant. Number one, the goal of Christian growth. Paul says it here. We're going to spend most of our time kind of camped in verse 18. That verse says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the goal. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of Jesus. So the goal is Christ-likeness. The goal is conformity to the image of Jesus. This is a significant and fundamental change in our inner being 
The concept is often called many things. It can be called growth in grace or the pursuit of holiness or sanctification like we talked about during our Advent series or godliness or spiritual formation. All those words are appropriate. But the goal of our transformation is that we might be brought into moral conformity with the character of Jesus Christ himself. You notice in chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus is described as the image of God. It says, in this case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, that phrase, image of God, should trigger something in your brain, right? Image of God appears in the very first chapter of the Bible. When God speaks creation into existence, and then he makes man, he makes man in his own image, after his own likeness. This is the definition of what humanity is. Humanity is the image of God. But if we need to be transformed into that image, we must be a broken image, right? And that we see this in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall and, and Adam and Eve sinning against God. And as a result, the image is marred, it's fractured, it's broken, and it needs to be transformed. And it is transformed through a message about a person, namely Jesus Christ, who is himself the image of God. So what the whole Bible is really all about is the image of God, in one way, getting restored for the glory of God. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 with the image of God, and then Genesis chapter 3, the fall and the brokenness of that image. And then Jesus Christ comes as the true image of God, the one in whom God is most accurately and most fully reflected. And then he rescues us and begins transforming us into that same image. That's the goal. What's the process? How does it happen? Well, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. It's a process. It's progressive. In other words, it's something that begins when we place our faith in Jesus and repent of sin and begin walking with Jesus, and then it's a process whereby we are progressively changed, freeing us more and more from sinful traits and developing within us over time the virtues of Christ-like character. And it's a process. It takes time. It's one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. It's progressive. It doesn't happen all at once. It's painfully, painfully slow at times. So that's the goal of Christian growth, is conformity to the image of Christ. The process is incremental. What is the means? And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. What is the way in which this spiritual growth happens. Notice 2 Corinthians 3.18 again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There's the way. So two things have to happen in order for your true humanity to be realized. For you to become a true human. Because to be truly and fully human means to live out the image of God. In case that image of God language is not helpful for you, let me just put it this way, okay? This is what I mean when I talk about image of God. Everybody gets up and looks in the mirror in the morning, right? We assess the damages. We look in the mirror and we're trying to, you know, uh, well, I need to shave for guys, some ladies too. 
We need to shave. We need to take care of some stuff. We need to brush our teeth. We need to fix that hair. We need to do something about whatever that is on my face. Or, you know, we're, we're assessing the damages. And in the process of that, what we're trying to do in looking in that mirror is see what we should really look like. Because we know what we should really look like, and that's not what we really look like. Well, as the image of God, when God looks at us, we are made to be mirrors of him. He is supposed to look at us and say, yeah, that's like me. Yeah, that's me. That's me and my love and my patience and all kinds of virtues. And that's me and my wrath. That's me. That's who I am. I wonder if you, as you sit here this morning, when you think about that, does that bother you a little bit? It should bother you. It should bother us. Because that should strike fear in us if we're outside of Christ, especially because when God looks at us, he's made us so that when he looks at us, he would see his reflection back at him. And how often when he looks at the vast majority of humanity, he sees nothing of what he is like. And that's why it is that's why hell exists, because it is an absolute offense to the God who created us to live a whole life that dishonors him and disrespects him and doesn't live out who, and show the world what he's really like. He made us in the beginning so that the earth would be filled of, with little mirrors of him, where if we would look at each other, we would see what God is like. And so often that's just not the case, as expressed in many of the things that Justin and Rebecca even shared with us this morning about the violence that's taking place and has taken place among our neighbors and friends. So there's two things that have to happen in order for this image to get restored. And God is committed to restoring this image. That's the great news. That God's not going to leave us to ourselves, but he's going to come after us and make sure that that mirror gets fixed and cleaned up and learn and, and be set on a trajectory of increasingly showing what he's like. Not perfectly in this age, or in this lifetime, but in a very real incremental sense it will be. So two things have to happen. First, we've got to get the veil taken off. And second, we have to behold the glory of the Lord. So the veil is what is keeping us from seeing the glory of the Lord. What is this veil? What's this veil that he's talking about? Well, in Exodus 32 through 34, it was a real physical veil. But Paul's using it metaphorically here to refer to our hardness of heart and enslavement to sin. Notice chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters, that same veil remains unlifted, but only through Christ is it taken away. So there's this hardness of heart that keeps us from seeing the glory of God and the greatness of God. Notice chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So this idea is the gospel itself, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, it does not look attractive to us. It doesn't feel compelling to us by nature. We're hardened. We have a veil over our eyes. We can't see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. In other words, we're under the power of Satan. Verse 4, in their case, that is the case of those who are veiled and perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, the, of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what's that all about? 
That's talking about as an unbeliever, which was the case of all of us at one time in this room. Most of us here this morning have experienced what I'm getting ready to talk about, but there was a time in our life where we were in this category. We were in verse 4. And some of you are there this morning. And you don't even know it. It's not like Satan is manifesting himself in your life with all sorts of oppression and possession and all that stuff. No. His whole goal is just to keep Jesus uninteresting. And to keep following him uncompelling, uninteresting, uncaptivating. Seeing Jesus, yeah, good man, a great moral example, uh, good things about him, like him, but no way am I going to submit to him as Lord and follow him as King and Christ and Savior and give my whole life over to him, take up my cross. No, the power of Satan is manifest in the veiling of the glory of Christ, keeping us from seeing the light of the gospel. And so in order to get us out of this mess, Paul tells us what has to happen. Verse 5, for what we proclaim, there, so there has to be a message, there has to be something proclaimed. Proclaimed is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then God uses that, notice verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1 language, very beginning of the Bible, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know what it takes to make a Christian? It takes the same voice that created the universe speaking into the dead, hardened soul of a person who is blind and captive to Satan. That's what it takes to make a Christian. It's not just walking an aisle, reading a card, getting baptized, praying a prayer. It's having the supernatural voice of God through the gospel speak life into a dead, hardened person. It is a miracle of miracles. It is the, that's the, that's the analogy that Paul pulls from here is, he said, God said, let light shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1, and therefore, that's why we can say, therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because it really is a new creative act of God whereby he brings something into existence that was not in existence. Namely, a heart in love with Jesus. So God says, let light shine out of darkness, and he does that through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And then he, God shines that light in our hearts to give what we... To give, to give, to give something that we don't have. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's how a Christian is made. He must shine in our hearts. He must give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the gospel message. We're in slavery. That's why Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 3, now the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit has to accompany the proclamation of the gospel message if we are going to receive it. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is freedom from hardness and deadness and slavery to sin and blindness and the removal of the veil. It happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. I hope it's really clear from you this, to you this morning that nothing less than a divine power is sufficient to produce the kind of transformation of human nature that God desires. There is nothing in ourselves that can be generated by self-help or self-effort that can conform us into Christ-likeness, that can make us truly human. 
But guess what? When God does that for us, and he's done that for so many of us, when God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, what happens? The veil is removed. Verse 14. Only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 16. Yes, to this, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So it's the, it's the turning to Jesus that gives us the removal of the veil that we need, which enables us to now begin being transformed into the, the same image. So that's the means of our transformation. That's the way it happens. It is by beholding the glory of the Lord through an unveiled face that we are able to be transformed. In other words, we become like Christ by beholding Christ. One writer says, Long looking with admiration produces change. From your heroes, you pick up mannerisms and phrases and tones of voice and facial expressions and habits and demeanors and convictions and belief. The more admirable the hero is and the more intense your admiration, the more profound will be your transformation. Isn't that true? Aren't people transformed by what they love? People are transformed by what they spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of mental energy investing in and a lot of time spent in the presence of. That's how transformation happens. If you spend a long time following a football team and you love them and you, and that's not wrong, to follow the football team, enjoy football and all that. And, and if you spend, just for sake of illustration, if you, if you spend a lot of time investing in that team and following that team and reading stats on that team and reading articles about them on a daily basis and following their Twitter account so you get updates and notifications when anything happens and you're always on the verge of all the latest information, don't be surprised if you've got a basement full of memorabilia. Right? And you're not going to miss a game. It's because you're being transformed by what you behold. You're becoming what you behold. And some people will literally become it. They will go to the game and dress up like the mascot. They will literally become what they enjoy. And that's because that's the way God made us. We are going to worship. As John Dillon said, John, Bob Dillon, not John Dillon, Bob Dillon said, you got to serve somebody. Right? So, as a result, it's not merely... And this is a word of challenge for us, brothers and sisters. It's not merely a brief glance now and then at Jesus or 90 minutes on a Sunday that is going to produce transformation in your life. It is not going to happen. Not the turning of an eye toward, toward Jesus for a few hurried moments in the early morning or in the late evening, but it's going to take the constant loving and reverent beholding of him across the decades that is going to produce lasting change, that will burn, begin burning the image of Christ itself upon your soul. If we thus train our hearts and eyes to look at Christ, we will be transformed into his image. So we've got to, we've got to spend time looking at him. We've got to spend time reading the Bible, meditating, praying, so that we can get to know this Jesus. So a logical question follows then. What does Paul mean when he says, beholding the glory of the Lord? What does that word glory mean? 
you notice I've already said this, but in the context, Paul is contrasting the glory of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, with the far surpassing glory of the New Testament gospel. And he contrasts that earlier in chapter two, which, or chapter three, which we didn't read. But he's trying to say that if Moses, in all of his glory, in, in, under the old covenant, was able to ha- have to have his face veiled because he saw the glorious God underneath that old covenant law, and that was glorious, even though it was fading away because his face began to fade as he came away from the presence of the Lord. How much more will the fact that the true image of God, the true glory of God, the person of Jesus Christ is here, how much more will that affect us and transform and change us? That's his contrast. He's contrasting in this chapter the, the lesser, though real glory of the old covenant with the manifest greater glory of the time in which we live, which is the time of Jesus Christ and his coming. And so Paul makes that contrast and explains the glory of the Lord. Notice what the glory of the Lord is. Skip down to chapter 4 again, verse 4. He uses this word glory again. He says, so we've already talked about the blinding of the mind. He says, Satan blinds our minds to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory. There's the word glory again. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the specific, I guess we could say the specific area that we should focus on as we seek to, to behold the glory of the Lord is the good news of the gospel. It's what Jesus has practically done for us in living our life perfectly, in dying our death on the cross, which we could never die, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, coming again, and all that we, are, we, we experience as a result of that transforming reality. So that message is intended to be what we progressively and intentionally and in a a real focused way behold and as a result we are transformed because Paul says that it is in the gospel message specifically the good news of what Jesus has done that there the glory of the Lord is best and most clearly seen so a key truth emerges doesn't it from this passage We are progressively transformed into the image of Christ by beholding his image as revealed in the gospel. And that has huge implications for us. I just want to give us three as we start to wrap up here. Three implications of this truth that we become what we behold. And it's through beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel that we are being transformed into his image. I think the first implication is you have to study the gospel for yourself. You've got to study the gospel for yourself. We must keep the gospel continually before us. To behold the glory of Christ in the gospel is a discipline. It's a, lo- it's a, it's a great discipline. It's a discipline that we should long for, but because we remain sinful and even though the veil is removed, this one degree of glory to another change is happening incrementally, we still have a war on our hands. So it's a habit that we have to cultivate and practice as we learn to bathe our hearts and minds in the gospel. 
Jane Knox Chamberlain put it this way. The spirit does not take his pupils beyond the cross. He only takes them ever more deeply into it. So as a disciple of Christ, we are intended to never get beyond the cross. It's not like, well, I heard the I know what Jesus did on the cross. Now teach me about other things. No, the, the point of Christianity is to get to know in a deeper, more robust and full way what you knew at the beginning of your Christian life. And the, the, uh, the Christian life is growing in understanding of what happened to you back at the beginning. It's understanding the full-blown flower of what was just the seed back at the beginning. So we must read the Bible in prayerful dependence upon the Holy Spirit with eyes peeled for the gospel. The Bible is fundamentally a book about what Jesus Christ, as God has done in Jesus Christ for us. Not first and foremost a book about what we have to do for God. The book is first and foremost a gift to us to tell us this is who God is. This is what's happened to this world. This is how it gets set right. And this is how everything's going to be all right in the end. That's fundamentally what this book is about. It's a revelation of what God has done for us. So that means that when we read Scripture, we've got to read Scripture Christocentrically. That is, with our eyes peeled and centered on Jesus Christ. What is this passage teaching me about Jesus, who he is, what he's done? Let's take one example, David and Goliath. Everybody knows that story, right? How do you read the passage about David and Goliath Christocentrically? How do you read it in such a way that it really is what the Bible intends it to mean, which is a, to, to foreshadow the work of the greater David, namely Jesus? So here's how often we can read or hear preached or taught what the story of David and Goliath is all about. Look, the bigger, the, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. So if you just go into your battles of your life with faith in the Lord, you might not feel really big in yourself or powerful in yourself, but with God on your side, you can defeat your giants. So in other words, we're put in the position of David, and then we are the hero. But as soon as we ask the question, what does this passage tell me about the glory of the Lord? The glory of Jesus? How is this foreshadowing the work of David's greater son? Then we begin to see the same features of the story in the different life. We're no longer David. Jesus is David. We are those who are fearful Israelites, cowering in fear, begging God to help us. Because we got no way out. We can't do it. We need a substitute. We need someone to step in and fight our battles for us. And so when David goes in on behalf of the Israelites, he's not a full-grown man. He's a vulnerable and weak figure. He's just a mere boy. And he goes virtually as a sacrificial lamb to the slaughter. But God uses his apparent weakness as the means to destroy the giant, and David becomes Israel's champion redeemer, and so that his victory is now imputed to the people of Israel. They get all the credit and all the fruit of David's victory having it like they had, had fought the battle on their own. And so this is in the end, there's really only two ways to read the Bible, brothers and sisters. Is it basically about you or is it basically about Jesus? 
In other words, is it basically about what you have to do or basically about what Jesus has done? Now, certainly the Bible contains lots of ethical instruction, but that ethical instruction is never, ever, ever divorced from what Jesus has done. And it must be lived that way. Otherwise, it's not Christian. So if I read David and Goliath as basically giving me an example of how to face down my giants and win by faith, then the story is really all about me. It must, I must summon up the faith and the courage to fight the giants in my life. But if I read David and Goliath as basically showing me salvation through Jesus, then the story really becomes all about him. Until I see that Jesus fought the real giants of sin and death for me, I will never have the courage to be able to fight the ordinary giants in my life like suffering, disappointment, failure, criticism, or hardship. In other words, when we read the Bible, brothers and sisters, every passage either predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the work of Christ. In the Old Testament, we are reading Bible, we are reading, we are reading scripture in a way that is predictive and preparation for Jesus. And when we read the New Testament, we are reading scripture that reflects or results from the work of Jesus. And so when we read about, for specifically in the Old Testament, which if you're starting a New Year's Bible reading plan or some sort of reading plan, I encourage you to have one of those, like that you're conscientiously and intentionally trying to put something before yourself in the Scriptures. If you're in the Old Testament now, and you're going to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament, considering the Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. So as you read through it, you need to have your eyes peeled for, what does this tell me about the glory of Jesus? So for instance, when you read about Adam, you read, you ask the question, what does Adam teach me about the second Adam? That, which, who's what Jesus is called in the New Testament. As Adam failed to pass the test in the garden, Jesus succeeded his pa- and passed the test in the desert against Satan. And his obedience counted for us, just like Adam's obedience was supposed to account for us. Or if you read about Abraham, which I was just reading this week about, this, about God's call of Abraham. But Abraham's not ultimately about Abraham. Abraham's about Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar, like Abraham did, but Jesus had to answer the call to leave from heaven to earth and go into the void not knowing where he went to create a new people for God. Jesus is, and when I get to Isaac next week, Abraham's promised son, and Isaac is offered up, God commands Isaac to be offered up by Abraham on the mountain, then I say, that's not ultimately about Abraham and Isaac. That's ultimately about the Father and Jesus. When God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, oh, now we know that you love us because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from us. What about Jacob? When we read about Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that when in his wrestling with God, we see that the greater Jacob wrestled with the father. And as a result, even though he was wounded, and he now extends the wounds of grace to us. What about Joseph, who was exalted to the right hand of the king and forgave those who betrayed him and who sold him into slavery and uses his new power to save his enemies? There's Jesus. What about Moses? who stood in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates between them as a great high priest. What about the rock of Moses in Exodus 17 where 
God commands Moses to strike the rock and with the rod of justice now water flows out. Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is called the rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The rock of Moses who was struck so that living water might come to us. And we could go through so many other ones if we had time. Job and David and Esther and Jonah. But the point is, is that Jesus is what the Bible is about. Jesus himself taught us that in Luke 24. He said, these are the scriptures that testify about me, John 5, 39. Luke 24, Jesus says that he came to fulfill all that the law and the prophets had spoken about him. So study the gospel for yourself, brothers and sisters. And don't just do it by yourself. Do it with others. Do it with others. You're not meant to just kind of go in, you know, just in your own little corner of the world and just get alone with God. You should do that. But God's given us the church for a reason. He's given us each other to help us to see the glory of Jesus better. One of the ways that we do that is every Sunday morning with the Gospel Project. Pastor Keith teaches it. The whole point of our adult Sunday school is this verse. That's it. It's to take every part of Scripture and explain to us how does it connect to Jesus and how does it connect to his mission. And so if you struggle with, you know, reading the Old Testament and what, how does this connect to, you know, Jesus and what's this all about, take part in his class. Join him if you're able to do so. And he will help us as we seek to understand the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. So that's the first implication. I'm going to go through these other two quickly. The first implication is to study the gospel for yourself. The second is to preach it to yourself. To preach it to yourself. To remind yourself of the truths about Jesus. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? Set your hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The antidote to discouragement and despondency is hoping in God. Where does hope in God come from? Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Commenting on this passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones famous British preacher of the last century in his book, Spiritual Depression, says this famous quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You've not originating them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 is this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to himself... He starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul had become depressed and was crushing him. So he stands and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And he speaks hope to himself. Hope in Jesus. If the Lord desires to take my mother-in-law home, we will speak these truths to ourselves as a congregation who's grieving her loss. We will speak hope in God. I will yet praise him. Sorrow may be for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So don't just preach it to yourself. Have it preached to you. Right? So attend faithfully the means by which we are instructed and, and, and are helped to behold the glory of the Lord. This would certainly include your attendance here in worship this morning, but it would also in, uh, include the Lord's Supper. Right? Is the Lord's Supper not designed to help us behold the glory of the Lord? That's why it's a means of our transformation, and that's why we need to take part in it. Because it's there that we literally, for a moment, 
we are able to focus our hearts and our minds on the glory of Jesus as he's revealed in the gospel. And we do, we practice, we get in the habit, we, we, we do it because we need to cultivate this discipline of looking at Jesus for a long time without getting bored. It takes discipline. It's hard. <laughs> so we have to implement this stuff in our lives all the time. And the Lord has given it graciously to us to say, look, I got a meal for you, church, that I'm going to give you. And as often as you eat it, and as often as you drink the cup and break the bread, you're going to be reminded of what I did for you. And by beholding that, partaking of that, you are going to be progressively transformed from one degree of glory to another. Third implication and final one is to quit thinking about yourself. So we've got study the gospel for ourselves. We've got preach the gospel to ourselves. And we've got to quit thinking about ourselves. Now, there is an appropriate self-reflection that the Bible commends to us, that we need to take inventory of how things are. But basically, that should be the exception and not the rule. Robert Murray McShane, his famous, famous pastor, was famous for saying, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I think that's a good balance. I think that's a good word. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson, pastor, says. The Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual. But from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. Historically speaking, whenever the piety of a particular, that's godliness, whenever the godliness of a particular group is focused on our spirituality, that piety will eventually exhaust itself on its own resources. Only where our piety forgets about ourselves and focuses on Jesus Christ will our piety be nourished by the ongoing resources of the Spirit as he brings them to us from the source of all true piety, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's ironic that the less you focus on yourself and put the focus that you would be giving on yourself to Jesus, that you are, will be transformed by Jesus. And then John Owen, in my closing quote, worship team, you can come join me on the stage now and before I pray. This is the last quote, John Owen commenting on this passage that we've been considering this morning about how we are transformed, writes the following. It's by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It's by faith that we grow to love Christ. So we, if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction. Don't you want that? I want that. Don't you want strong faith, powerful love that gives you rest, peace, and satisfaction? Here's what Owen's counsel is. We must seek them diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid. Impossible for me to enjoy. Let's pray. Father, I confess on all of our behalf that we have a long way to go in this. But we thank you that you are gracious to us and that the transformation that you bring about in our lives is over a period of time. And that it is as we continually, repentantly, believingly turn our distracted hearts and our 
fickle hope and our wayward eyes to you again and again that you begin burning the image of Jesus on our souls. We thank you that one day in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, those who have been called and believe in Christ will be transformed completely because we will see you as you are. And having seen you, we will be transformed truly into that image. We thank you that even though in this life we see through a mirror dimly, that one day we will see face to face. And we long for that day and we pray that you would come soon and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us now as we turn to worship once more as we wrap up this gathering together. Help us to behold you. And even in some small way, transform us even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.